The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, and we'll continue in our plowing through the book of Deuteronomy, sometimes with big sections pretty fast and sometimes very slowly in small little segments, and that's where we find ourselves tonight in a study of the Ten Words of Moses, the Ten Commandments. A mother was noticing that her young daughter was drawing with her crayons with an intense concentration, and she came and said, honey, what are you drawing? I'm drawing God, she said. But dear, said the mother, nobody knows what God looks like. And the daughter immediately answered, they will when I'm done. What is God like? What does God look like? What is his image? How can we identify in a mental concentration on an image the person of God? It might surprise you to learn that God is not really like anyone. He's not really like anything or anybody. But when Ezekiel and Isaiah both saw heaven open up, they found themselves looking at something they had no language to describe. They used similes and metaphors. He's like this, like unto that. All they could say was he's something like a reference point they had in this universe. Describing a glimpse of God is a very different thing than letting our imaginations try to invent and create an image of God that's based on anything except just your mind. Think about this. What does God look like in the movies? How has Hollywood portrayed God? Think of how Jesus is portrayed. Um, I just I have a thing about Jesus in movies. I think most of the time they portray him as some, you know, um, non-Jewish looking blue-haired wimp. Blue-eyed. That would even be worse if he was blue-haired. <laughs> like I said, I'm a little upset about the way he's portrayed. <laughs> you know, he was Jewish. He, and he was, a, he was a, a mason, a carpenter. He was a man's man. My favorite of all depictions of Jesus in any movie, and I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag. It's one of two movies I own. It's Ben-Hur, because you never see Christ. It's always from the back, and they leave that to your imagination. What is God like? Well, God knew we would ask that question, and he knew we would speculate, and he regulated our speculation in the second commandment. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, We find the second commandment in verse 8. Moses says, quoting God, You shall not make for yourself an idol, or literally a graven carved image, or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath, or the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me, and to those who keep my commandments. This is a serious indictment. This attacks idolatry at its core. 
But the idolatry attacked in the second commandment, my surprise you, is not the idolatry we typically look at in the rest of the Bible. What's going on here is quite different than the idols of Asheroth or the idols of Ashkelon or the, the idols of the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Akkadians. What's going on here is God is saying, don't make an image, an idol, that's supposed to represent me. There are other verses and there are other texts for other idols that represent other things that can be worshipped. But this is the most heinous of all. This is God, as we've said all along, these are God's regulations for us to commemorate and protect everyone's rights but ourselves. Every one of the Ten Commandments is either uh, uh, created, it's commanded for us to protect God's rights or to protect others' rights. Here, God informs us how to protect his power and his prerogative to define his own image. I want to look, just as we drill down in this passage, it's very simple. There's not a lot of hardcore Hebrew exegesis in this passage. Very straightforward stuff. Three serious mandates that embody the second commandment. You want a little outline to follow along? Three serious mandates that embody the second commandment. I think there are some implied and some supplied imperatives, things that we're told to do and not do in this commandment. The first is uh, very simply in verse 8. Never attempt to enhance God's personal image. Never attempt to enhance God's personal image. He said, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. This commandment attacks the horrific sin of trying to enhance God's attractiveness by representing him in the form of a created thing. Think about that. Trying to enhance God's attractiveness, what would be beautiful about him, by something that we make. In fact, these words guard against adapting the the worship of the great and transcendent God of Israel to the base imagery of the ancient Near Eastern religions that were found in graven images, in carved little statues. It also guards against the notion that God's greatness could be captured in a created thing, infinite power in a itty-bitty living space. That's what the second commandment is forbidding Now, the second commandment is logically built on the first commandment. The first commandment forbids the existence of other gods. The second commandment forbids the making of other gods. The first commandment says there are no other gods, so forget trying to worship them. The second uh, commandment says don't make a god, even if you're trying to represent me. Just for an interesting uh, example, I want you to turn back to Exodus uh, chapter 32, uh, familiar territory for those of you who know the, um, the book of Exodus in general and the, uh, or specifically and the flow of the children of, Israel, e- e- children of Israel leaving Egypt generally. In chapter 32, that's the great sin of the molten calf. One of the things that is easy to miss is what was going on in the molten calf. Look carefully at what Israel was trying to enhance and create by this. Now, when they saw the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. He'd gone up at least twice for 40 days, 40 nights. He'd gone up. He's somewhere in his fourth week. They had gotten frustrated with that, so they decided to go on their own. 
He delayed to come down on the mountain. The people assembled around Aaron and said to him, come and, isn't this hard to even say, come and make us a God. I mean, we can just, just stop right there. Make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, ha, we don't know what's become of him. Aaron said to them, tell you what, take off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives. That's not good marriage counseling. Of your sons, that's not good parenting. Your daughters, even less so, and bring them to me. The people tore off. The Hebrew says they literally ripped them out. That's how anxious they were to create this God. They tore off the gold rings which were in the ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took them from their, this from his, their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they, and they said, listen to this, this is your God, O Israel. Is this a new God? Next phrase. Who brought you up from the land of Egypt. See what they're saying? A direct violation of the second commandment. They're saying, yeah, the God who brought us up, the God that we know, the real God, we're now going to contain him in a cow. It's always good to have little idols that you can control. You can shine them. You can leave them out in the rain. You can put them in the backyard. You can put them inside, out of sight. When you have an idol or an image, you're in control. God's saying, I can't be controlled. I can't be manipulated. I'm not, you can't use machinations and shamanistic magic to pull me into your little superstitious world. I am who I am. I am God, and I cannot be contained. The basis of this commandment, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, backing up a chapter, is found in verse 15. So watch yourselves carefully since you did not see any form. Wow, you can underline that and, and put an attachment to that over in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire. That's so important. God didn't come and say, this is what I look like. Lest you act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure in the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's in the water below or the earth. Beware lest you lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and the host and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to the, all the peoples under the whole heaven. What's he saying there? I didn't give you an image to see. Inherent in the second commandment is what we've said over and over over the last couple of years, and that is that God is fundamentally a verbal God. He left us a book. He didn't leave us a video. He left us his word. He didn't leave us an image. Moses says, remember, you didn't see a form. So don't create one that pulls God into it. Thomas Watson writes, God is not to be adored in the heart, nor, nor God is to be adored in the heart, rather, not painted to the eye. The Hebrews translated, <laughs> I love this. We translate these all, you shall not. It's really better translated, you better never. You better not ever do this. The word idol is peshel. It's describing anything that's carved, hewn, worked with, with hands and masonry uh, for, for wood or stone. Later in Israel's history, the metal images were, were to be condemned as well. That's Judges 17 and Isaiah 40. 
metal, wood, stone. Don't carve anything and say this is the true and living God or this is any God. By the way, these idols in the ancient Near East existed in a variety of shapes and sizes. They typically represented things in the heavens above. That's what it says here in the text. Birds on the earth beneath, land creatures. In the waters below, that's fish and other marine animals. And this three-tiered understanding of the world was a very common notion in the ancient Near East. He's saying, don't be like the pagans who worship the creation and not the creator. At issue here in Moses' mind and in the heart of God is the invisibility of God and the impossibility of representing him in any kind of concrete form. He's saying, believe that God is greater than the creation. Once you try to put infinite power into a little bitty living space, you have just said that the creature can create the creator. We should never never try to capture God in an image because God is free. We can't capture God's creation in an image because of his majesty. We need not make images of God because he cannot be limited. We should never try to make images of God because... He should never be obscured. We cannot capture God in image because he cannot be localized. How do you get the the infinite, omnipresent, omniscient God in a little bitty cow? We're not to make an image of God because images reverse the creative order that we were made in his image, not vice versa. And we should never make an image of God because it's always the wrong kind of addition and subtraction regarding his character. If we were to invent an image of God, we would add something that's not true and leave something out that is true. How can you capture God in a statue? I mean, think of that as an assignment. Everyone go home, get your Play-Doh out, get your woodworking tools, go over to Ben Brown's house and get, he's got lots of tools, and I want you to create an image of God and let's come back and compare notes next week. Well, that's just embarrassing. Who's going to create God and a picture of God God revealed himself in voice, not image. That's why we put such stock in God's word. It's been an intention from the very beginning that God would be revealed and understood through language, not through imagery. God had the power of creating imagery. Look, the DVD, when that was invented, God didn't look in the angels and say, did you see that, what they did? That's pretty cool. He could have created images for, from the very beginning, but he didn't. That's why we live by faith and not by sight. Does that sound familiar? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Even the image of Jesus is left to us in the scripture as something to understand, not something to visualize. A couple of questions we need to address here, though, because I know you're asking them. What about imagery and the arts? I mean, what about those beautiful depictions of, of the crucifixion or of, of the, you know, the, the top of the Sistine Chapel with, with man and God reaching in the gap? What about the arts? Remember that Exodus 25 and 1 Kings 6 in the tabernacle and the temple of God had a tremendous amount of art employed, sometimes even representing angelic creatures. The issue of condemning imagery comes when the images attempt to represent God as the representation of God or a God 
as a subject of worship. You know, it's, it's hard for me to ignore or skip over the abuses of the Catholic Church throughout history on this issue. Superstitious visualizations of God. A woman once told me that Jesus lives in her rosary that's hung above her fireplace. Icons, crucifixes, saints, even the, 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 the icons of Mary that are clearly called the mother of God. What about artistic jewelry? Can I wear a cross? Can I, can I wear something that has Christian meaning? Again, the issue is not of whether an object is meaningful. The issue is whether or not the object is worshipped. If you want to wear a cross, that's great. If it reminds you, if it's a witnessing tool, that's not a big deal. It's all about, are you worshiping that? Are you localizing that? Is that a superstitious on-ramp for your worship? If it is, throw it away. Melt it down. Get rid of it. If it's just a reminder, that's not a big deal. Now, that also, for, for those of us who are more conservative, that uh, you've got to be careful with the, the, the pictures of Jesus that may adorn your walls at home. You don't need to go tear them down, but if you think there's a special significance and that's what Jesus looked like, now it's a violation of the second commandment. If that's what we're trying to worship, then that's a problem. There should be no superstitious, sentimental uh, religiosity or worship attached to a thing. Really important. He goes on and look into verse... um, Nine, we find another mandate here. Never attempt to improve God's prescripted worship. Never attempt to improve God's prescripted worship. He says, you shall not worship or serve them. The Hebrew here speaks literally of bowing down and kneeling before an idol. It would have been a temptation as they traveled uh, in other communities since travelers were required to pay homage to local deities by bowing down before their statues Israel certainly wanted something that people would bow down to as well. They wanted to be like the people around them. The whole uh, end of Deuteronomy is going to instruct the people not to be like the nations they were going to conquer. This was one of the primary ways. Don't have a little icon, a little statue, a little carving, no matter how beautiful and how ornate, that people can come and bow down and pay homage to. Don't worship. Don't serve them. Rather, consume your life with spiritual worship. Remember John 4, God is spirit, and those who worship him worship him in spirit and truth. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. We always talk about him not giving his glory to another. In the same verse, it says, I won't give my praise to a graven image. In other words, it should be the passion of our life to worship God in spirit and in truth. How do the ancient Jews do this? Well, less than 40 days after they were told to do this, they created a golden cow. How close are we to creating images, superstitious attachments to things that really substitute for our worship of the true and living God. This third mandate that's in this text is, has caused some people a great degree of consternation. And, 
And I hope we can clear up what this means for now and forever. Uh, The mandate, I think, that flows out of this is never attempt to ignore God's passionate jealousy. Never attempt to ignore God's passionate jealousy. We we come up into um, the middle of verse 9, and we find God saying, For I, the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, the one who revealed himself, am a jealous God. Good enough. God is jealous. The only re- the, he's the only person who can be jealous because jealousy is, is the attempt to possess someone or something else that's not yours. Everything is God's, and he has the right to be jealous over everything. It's his. He can be jealous without sinning. And then there's this little phrase, <laughs> visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. That seems fair, doesn't it? On the third and fourth generation, that seems less fair of those who hate me. What in the world does that mean? Third and fourth generation, what, what is that? In order to understand what this means and in order to understand what it doesn't mean, you have to go back and look at the, the lodging practices, the living dwelling practices of those who were in um, ancient Israel. Typically, what you do is, uh, you know, the, the land was, was pretty sparse, is that when your, you, your son uh, uh, had a dowry, had an engagement, they would get married, and then they would come and just build a room under your house, and a room under your house, and room on top of your house, it was typically attached. It was not unusual to have three and four, and sometimes if the grandfather lived, great-grandfather lived long enough, four and five generations living almost under one roof. What this is talking about here is that if a father, if the patriarch sins, it has serious consequences for his entire household. It doesn't mean they're cursed with that. I had a gentleman tell me one time that he, was, uh, he knew that he was going to be an adulterer. I said, what? He wasn't even married. And he says, I'm, I know I'm going to be an adulterer. I said, how can you say that? He said, because my father and my grandfather were both adulterers, and I know God is going to visit that iniquity on me. Well, is that really what this is saying? Is that the God that you know of the Bible who's going to say, well, if your grandfather and your father did it, now you're going to do it for sure. That's not, God does not judge by giving a propensity to sin. He's not the author of sin. All this is talking about is that he visits iniquity of the fathers on the people who are under their influence. That's all it's saying. Let me give you a classic example. It was a man that we were uh, dealing with in counseling in California, a couple of us were, who was um, uh, a serious um, heroin addict um, and was caught selling and went to jail. He had uh, one, two, three children. And there was also, uh, during that time, his, his sister and her husband were living with them. There were like three families living uh, in that house. When this gentleman went to jail, that had massive impacts on his entire family. That's what's being spoken of here. And specifically, it's the father and the patriarch in the home's leadership in worship. Idolatry is very contagious. Idolatry is a disease and a sickness that people gladly participate in. God says, I'm jealous. I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now we find what's going on. If a father begins to hate God, you say, where did that come from? What is, well, there's nothing about hate in here. Yes, there is. 
When you substitute the greatness of God for an image, you have now hated God. That's the simile. That's the, 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 uh, the, the paraphrase of what's going on in the commandment itself. To create an image of the true and living God is equal to announcing that you hate God in the way he's revealed himself. The idea of hating God means that his gracious covenant is rejected. Love is the equivalent of choosing him in his image. Hatred is the equivalent of turning your back on the way he says he really is. The second commandment can really be, be transferred very quickly into the study of theology proper. The second commandment is really telling you what not to do. The what to do of the second commandment is study the nature of God. Study what he's like. Get to know his person. Understand his attributes, his characters, his infinite expressions of who he is. And adore him in that wonder and understand that you're always going to come up against a wall where you say, I don't get it. We've talked about this before, and I, I still, I was thinking about it this week. God's eternity. I'm okay thinking about God being eternal from now on. For, 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 some, for some reason, that's okay that it never stops. I, I like that. But that's the problem for me. That he's always been. Forever. And forever before that, with never a beginning, you want to have a theological meltdown, you just meditate on that for a while, right? How are you going to put that in a cow? How are you going to put that in a little image? How are you going to put that in a little crucifix and said, this is my God who is from eternity and to eternity. Do you like the way he looks? That's not what we do with that. The impact of rejecting God and choosing the worship of idols is contagious and disastrous from leaders in families. Fathers, let me just tell you, your God will be your family's God. Your view of the gospel will be your family's view of the gospel. Your value of church, and I'm glad you're all here tonight, by the way, your valuing of church will be your family's valuing of church. What's precious to you will be precious to them. What's ignored by you will be ignored by them. What is of intrinsic worth in your family is contagious. We're to remember the promise of God's faithful love. Look at the next phrase. Verse 10. <laughs> but showing loving kindness, that's has said in the Hebrew, it's, it's, the, it's the most um, interesting word to me in the Hebrew language. I'd like to translate has said for you, but it would take a few minutes. When I looked up in my uh, um, halot, the Hebrew and Aramaic uh, dictionary and lexicon, uh, it's three pages of definition. Loving kindness is not even a word. It's just the stuffing of several words together. It's a good attempt, loving kindness, the disposition of grace and mercy and kindness and love and unmerited favor and, and putting it all to God's disposition to love instead of hate when there's reason to hate, but he loves. That's what loving kindness means. 
He shows loving kindness to thousands. Now look at this. To those who, here's the qualification, love me and keep my commandments. There is the lordship of God, the lordship of Jesus Christ, who is this God incarnate, right there in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Love me and keep my commandments. That's exactly what Jesus says cyclically over and over and over in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. We studied that last year, right? Love me, keep my commandments. Love me, keep my commandments. Then he says this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And the only reason you would keep my commandments is if you love me. Deuteronomy, by the way, is the first place in the Bible that we're told to love God. We'll see that in chapter 6. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does it mean to love God? It's a decent question. I mean, it's a simple question, but let's say that your junior high son or daughter comes to you and says, how can I love God? Now, that's more complicated than it might seem in the context of this passage, right? Can you see God, taste God, smell God, touch God? Do the senses work with God? No. Then how do you love one you've never seen? How would you answer the question? How can you love God? Can I give you a little bit of a silly illustration? Several years ago, um, I had uh, saved up for many years uh, a lot of frequent flyer miles. The Lord put a vacation together for us that was amazing. Uh, we had frequent flyer miles. We had a place to stay that was graciously uh, given to us uh, with a timeshare that a guy wasn't going to use in Orlando to go to Disney World. So we went. My sons had never been. They only knew bits and pieces about it, but they loved the thought of that experience. They loved it because they studied it. They looked at it. They got online. They watched videos about rides. It was on the YouTube about this. And we didn't do It's a Small World, by the way. That's forbidden in the Holland family. Once you do that ride, that song is stuck in your head for 10,000 years. But their attraction to it made them interested in it, and they loved this place we were going to go without ever having experienced it. It's the same in a very small parallel way with God. You only love God when you observe that which is lovable about God. We use the term adorable for babies, and we should. They're adorable. But if you look at the etymology of that word, what it really means is something worthy of adoration. We should adore God. Why? Because we see so much of his wonder, his splendor, his beauty, his kindness. Look right here, his compassion, his loving kindness. And it makes us love him. A person who doesn't love God doesn't read his Bible. But a Christian who reads his Bible will love God. It's a real simple equation. Do you love God? We use love for so many things. It's really amazing. I mean, I love Krispy Kreme donuts. I love Einstein's iced tea. I I love Ginger's brownies. I love so many different things. Uh, Those were all food, weren't they? Um, You know, I love to hike. I love to hunt. I love to fish. And in the middle of that, you're going to say, and I love God? Is that that the right word? Well, this idea of love is to dispose yourself and predispose yourself to, 
to the overwhelming realities of God such that you walk away and say, wow, that is someone I'm deeply attracted to. Ever notice that we talk about the things we, what? Love. You want to increase your witness? Look for the character of God. Understand him more intimately. Love him more fervently, and you'll talk about him. That's 1 Peter 2, 9. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. We just talk about what's great about God. Terms love and hate are closely associated in the presence and absence of obedience here, aren't they? Love and hate. The term commandment, by the way, uh, miswat, is a generic word that encompasses more than the Ten Commandments. It refers to the covenantal requirements for Israel as a whole. Where does this land for you and me? The answer is in the great sin of exchanging. We've been looking at this in Romans chapter 1. You exchange the truth of God for a lie. And what does he say that lie is? It's creating images of things to worship, thinking that's God, thinking that's the creator. You're going to create something that created you. That's genius, isn't it? There's a lot of theology that flows out of the second commandment. So much. God is transcendent. He's not material. God is invisible. He knew that the elimination of any visual substitutes for himself would mean that we would always be cast back on our knowledge of him, gained from experiencing him, him in his word, not conjuring things up in our imaginations. God is gracious, says he demonstrates loving kindness to thousands. He reveals himself. God is the only legitimate object of worship. He's a judge and a rewarder. He's jealous for our devotion. But that's all really just an introduction. The second commandment is an introduction to one verse that we have to look at. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. And this takes us so perfectly into a time around the Lord's table. We have to reconcile what we've just read, what God has just commanded us, with this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, God did, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, that's Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Put the brakes on, pull the car over, what? What? Don't make an image of God. Jesus is the image of God. Here's the deal. We didn't make Jesus the image of God. God the Father made Jesus his image. He's not an idol. He's the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Did you know that Jesus, Jesus is and was the creator of the universe, 
The second person of the Trinity was there at the creation. That's another way of saying the God of the Old Testament is Jesus, not he didn't just send Jesus. We can't let our understanding of the Trinity carve up the person of God so precisely that we can't let this be exactly what it says. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's bizarre language in English and in Greek. Basically what is said there is he's the what you can see of what is impossible to see. Isn't that interesting? How do you see God? You behold him in the face of Jesus. Turn over to Colossians, I mean, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This might even be more clear. Going back and talking about the analogy of creation. <coughs> 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Stop right there. Don't you want the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? That's what Moses asked for. Show me your glory. And God said, tell you what, what I'll do is I'll pick you up and I'll put you in this rock and I'm going to pass by and show you my backside, my afterglow. I'm going to put my hand over your face and, and you can just see a glimpse of that and then I'm going to be gone. Moses said, I want to see the light of the knowledge, the insights of your glory. Where do we find that? Look at the last phrase. In the face of Jesus. In the face of Christ. So what's the pursuit What's the takeaway from the second commandment? The second commandment says don't create images of God, which is the only, which is the flip side of saying only accept God's image of God and God's greatest image of God is Christ. In Hebrews 1, it says he, um, he spoke to us in the fathers and the prophets long ago. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. It literally says in son, S-O-N, meaning the language he used, the language God used was Jesus. I'm going to show you, tell you who I am, and it's my son. That's the language I'm going to use. Well, that puts us where we need to come tonight in visiting the memory of God's image, which is his son, the Lord Jesus. And he knew that that image would be something that we could pursue in his word, but he also knew that it would be an image that we would easily forget. We are painfully forgetful creatures. And what this table is designed to do is to shake us up, to remind us, and to remind us of who he is and what he's done, and to remind us that he has nailed our sins to the cross. We bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Right? You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.